Each week, over the last few weeks, we've been comparing and contrasting true spirituality with other brands of spirituality. And as he writes to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul does not deny that when it comes to spirituality, other brands are available. But Paul wants to show the deceptiveness and ultimately the hollowness and the unhelpfulness of those other brands. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul showed the centrality and the supreme importance of Jesus, the Son of God. True spirituality gives Jesus the highest place, Paul told us, as Lord of all creation and Lord of the new creation. Any brand of spirituality that fails to give Jesus the highest place is a deficient spirituality. It can't truly help us because it does not acknowledge the basic reality of our existence, the reality that Jesus the Son rules. He is Lord of all. Any spirituality that gets Jesus' position wrong is a dud spirituality. It's a non-starter. And the passage we're going to look at this morning, Paul is going to show that, and he is also going to show what it means for us when we come to Jesus and acknowledge his rightful place. When we do that, we take on a new identity. It's an identity that is both wildly glorious and at the same time deadly serious. Those who give Jesus his rightful place become saints and servants. If you haven't turned to Colossians yet, you'll find it on page 1182 in the Green Church Bibles or in the larger print Bibles 1829. Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week, so we'll read from verse 21 down to verse 27. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, 
which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is God's Word. You may have noticed as we read those verses that Christ's body is mentioned twice. Or more accurately, two bodies of Christ are mentioned in these verses. First, we hear about His physical body. Then second, we hear about His body, the church. And those two bodies of Christ are the keys to understanding our identity as those who belong to Christ. Our identity as both saints and servants. First, in verses 21 to 23, those who belong to Jesus Christ are saints, sharing in the reconciliation won by the suffering of his physical body on the cross. In the passage we looked at last week, Paul ended by speaking about God's work through Jesus Christ. Paul set that work in its widest context, its cosmic context. Paul said, God worked through Christ to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven. That's the big picture. But now... Paul shows the personal picture. In verse 21, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. These verses show you and I will never appreciate the wonder and the glory of reconciliation with God if we don't first grasp the reality of alienation from God. There are many brands of spirituality today that want to assure us we're all basically okay. Things are basically fine. All that's needed are a few tweaks here and there for us. Maybe a bit of mindfulness on our part, clearing a bit of breathing space in our lives so we can fulfill our potential. The message is, fixing your issues is very doable. It's well within reach. But that is not what the Bible tells us. According to the Bible, none of us are okay. We're not even close to okay. We are alienated from God. And not just in the sense that we've lost touch with Him somehow. It's much more serious than that. We are God's enemies. And notice how that animosity is shown in both our thinking and in our behavior. In verse 21, the NIV says, you are enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. The NIV has a footnote which, with a slightly different translation that's probably more helpful. You are enemies in your minds as shown by your evil behavior. In other words, as human beings, we show the same progression as our first ancestors showed in Genesis chapter 3. They decided that God's commands 
weren't particularly good. The first men and women entertained thoughts that were full of animosity towards God. They thought about His commands. They thought about the idea that it wasn't a particularly good thing for God to be commanding them. They decided they wouldn't mind a shot at being God themselves. They meditated on that. And then they acted on those thoughts and meditations. They showed their animosity toward God in their behavior finally. They disobeyed Him and they ate the fruit. And you and I follow the same pattern. Rebellion against God starts in our hearts and minds. And then it works its way out into our actions. And that helps us to understand why it is that when law and order breaks down in a society, what we find is that normally law-abiding people will do all sorts of outrageous things under those circumstances. Looting shops, for example. What that shows is those previously law-abiding people were never law-abiding in their hearts. They were just waiting for an opportunity to show that they weren't law-abiding. And that opportunity comes when law and order breaks down and they finally feel they can get away with the stuff they've always wanted to do. That's why cleaning up our behavior is never enough. It's our hearts and minds that need to be sorted out. And it's just the same when it comes to our alienation from God. It can't be fixed by just cleaning up our behavior. That leaves the animosity in our hearts and minds untouched. That resentment in us that resentment that says, why should God think he has any say over how I ought to live? Our alienation from God runs deep, deep in us. We are his enemies to the core, even if we don't always show it on the outside. And when you and I begin to realize that, we're able finally to see the wonder and the glory of what God has done for us in Christ. Verse 22 says to the Colossians, alienated as you were from God in your minds as well as your behavior, alienated as you were, God has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. Reconciliation couldn't come from our side. Remember, we're rebels to the core. Reconciliation, if it was going to come, had to come from God's side. And it did. God the Son took on a real, solid, physical body, a human body. He came as one of us, and He gave Himself as a sacrifice in our place. It's important to see reconcilia reconciliation with God doesn't rest on some mystical idea. It rests on a physical sacrifice offered up in history for us. Back in verse 20, it was described as making peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. 
And if we wonder what the background to that sacrifice was, if we wonder how to make sense of it, we make sense of it by considering the Old Testament. The Old Testament is full of sinful people offering up bloody sacrifices for their sin. It's full of bulls and lambs and goats being hauled onto the altar and sacrificed. The sacrifice died instead of the people. Every day that happened in Israel. And God set all of that up. It was his idea. And it was to set a context for the one true sacrifice to come. The one sacrifice that could actually pay for human sin. God the Son in the flesh, dying in the place of sinful men and women. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserved for all of our animosity towards God, all our rebellion against His Lordship, whether that rebellion was in our minds only or whether it spilled over into our our behavior as well. The fact is, we couldn't fix the problem. No amount of tweaks on our part could ever fix it. But Jesus Christ did fix it. Those who rely on him are forgiven. But our passage goes much further than that. We are not only forgiven, we are saints. I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear the word saint. The word has undergone a bit of a change since the New Testament. Most people today, when they hear the word saint, think of an exceptional person. Someone who's part of an exclusive club. Someone who has climbed to a special level of holiness. Saints are a select few. But that is not how the New Testament uses the word saint. Although if you read a modern translation of the Bible, you might have trouble finding the word saint in there. A saint is literally a holy person. And because the word saint carries so much baggage today... Because of that, modern translations tend to say holy people instead of saints. So, for example, if you glance back up to verse 2 of Colossians 1, you will see that this letter is addressed to God's holy people. Saints, in other words. And older translations would have said that. And the point is, according to the New Testament, saints are not a special class of super-Christians. Saints are not overachieving followers of Jesus Christ. According to the New Testament, everyone who belongs to Christ is a saint. Being a saint is not something we earn. It's not something we climb up to. It is a glorious gift God gives us when we recognize our great lack of saintliness. When we come to Christ as rebels, alienated from God, unable to save ourselves, and relying on Christ alone. When we come to God like that, we receive not only forgiveness, we become saints. Or as verse 22 puts it, we become holy in God's sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. 
In other words, we become like our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is all of those things. Those things are His by right. And when we come to Him as our only hope, those things become ours by His gift. Jesus shares His holy status with us. Everyone who comes to Jesus receives the status of a saint. God no longer sees us as soiled rebels. He no longer has any accusation to make against us. We've been reconciled to him through the death of his son. And one day when Christ returns, the state of our hearts and minds will finally match our holy status. Until that day, we make progress. It might often seem like painfully, painfully slow progress. But on that day, we will finally be holy as our God is holy. You won't recognize yourself. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are our saints. That is our identity. That is your status already. And at Christ's return, you will fully and finally grow up into that status. And in verse 23, Paul reminds us, there's no other way to receive that. There's no other way to be a saint. No other way to be reconciled to God. If we move from the hope held out in the gospel, that's the good news of Jesus, if we move from that, then we're abandoning our only hope of reconciliation with God. No other spiritual path will get us there. What we've seen so far is if you belong to Jesus Christ, you have an identity that is wildly glorious. It's incredible. It's worth singing about. Verses 21 and 22 are worth reflecting on often. They will restore peace to your soul. They will get you singing. And without in any way dampening the delight of verses 21 and 22, the rest of our passage adds another element to this. It shows us our wildly glorious identity is also a deadly serious one. Those who belong to Jesus Christ are servants, sharing in his ongoing suffering for the sake of his body, the church. At the end of verse 23, Paul mentioned that he has become a servant of the good news about Jesus. But in verse 24, when he explains what that servanthood involves, Paul makes one of the most startling statements in the New Testament. Look at it in verse 24. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. If we've been awake for the last 15 minutes, verse 24 ought to startle us. Why? 
Well, because the previous verses told us Christ's sacrifice on the cross was enough. He has reconciled us to God through the sacrifice of his physical body on the cross. There's nothing more to be done. So how can Paul say here that he is filling up in his body, his flesh, what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions? What does that mean? Well, notice when Christ's body is mentioned here, it is no longer his physical body we're talking about. It is his body, which is the church. Christ's suffering in his physical body on the cross was enough to reconcile us to God. That suffering cannot be added to. There's no need for it to be added to. So here in verse 24, we're not talking about suffering that pays the price for our redemption. That suffering is done. It was finished at the cross. This is about a different kind of suffering. This is suffering Jesus Christ is undergoing since the cross for the sake of his body, the church. And Jesus himself explained this suffering directly to the Apostle Paul. When we read Paul's letters, which are full of devotion to Christ, we might be shocked to know about Paul's past. And we read about his past earlier in Acts chapter 9, when he still went by the name of Saul. And we saw in that chapter, in those days, he was a desperate enemy of Jesus Christ. He was wholly dedicated to destroying Christ's disciples. Acts 9 says that Paul, then known as Saul, was breathing out murderous threats against Jesus' disciples. He was on the road to the city of Damascus to arrest any followers of Jesus he found there. And then we read this. As Saul neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Was Saul persecuting Jesus? Well, he didn't seem to be. By this stage, Jesus had risen from the dead and returned to heaven. Jesus appeared to be well and truly safe from any persecution. It was Jesus' followers that Saul was persecuting. Jesus had left his followers on earth to carry out a mission. They were to gather in his church. The New Testament often refers to the church as Jesus' body. That shows how dear and precious his church is to him. As dear and precious as his own body. Jesus' followers were to gather in that body of the church. All the men, women, and children from all nations who would come to Jesus during history. His followers would gather in the church by proclaiming the gospel. By sharing the good news that reconciliation with God is available through Jesus' finished work on the cross. That was the mission. And as they carried out that mission, 
Jesus' followers were being severely persecuted by Saul. But on the Damascus road, Jesus explained something to Saul. By persecuting Jesus' followers, Saul was persecuting Jesus. Jesus himself was suffering affliction as his followers suffered affliction. So this has nothing to do with Jesus' suffering in his physical body on the cross, as we said. This is Jesus' suffering as his followers suffer. On the cross, Jesus went through a once-for-all-time suffering, a suffering that brought us reconciliation. Since the cross, Jesus suffers in a different way. He suffers as his servants suffer. Jesus suffers along with them. And he undergoes that suffering for the sake of his body, the church. Jesus suffers with his servants for as long as it takes for his body, the church, to be gathered in. Until the mission on earth is over. From the day Saul met Jesus on the Damascus road, he was changed. Most obviously, his name was changed to Paul, but more deeply and radically, he became a servant of Jesus. And Paul suffered for it. He is in prison as he writes this letter. He'll refer to that later on. The prison was the least of the afflictions Paul suffered for the sake of Christ's body, the church. In several places, the New Testament lists what Paul went through. But Paul knew whatever he suffered, Jesus was suffering along with him. It's an incredible insight into the care Jesus has for his people. Into how much Jesus identifies with his people. Incredible insight into his dedicated love today. The New Testament is right to call the church his body because he feels any pain that is inflicted on his body, the church. Just as he felt the pain inflicted on his physical body on the cross. what he's telling Saul in these words on the screen. And here, Paul is telling us, Jesus will see that suffering through to the end. He will endure it until every last member of his church is gathered in. And Paul says he finds it a joy and an honor to serve and suffer for such a Savior. Verse 24, Paul says, he rejoices in what he's suffering. Not because he loves to suffer, but because he is so honored to serve the Lord who suffers along with him. So what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions means however much of it is left until all the church is gathered in. Paul says, I'm glad to go through whatever share I've got in those remaining afflictions of Christ. I'm honored to suffer along with him for however much I have to. 
And we probably realize by now, Paul was not unique in this. Yes, in certain ways, Paul's mission was unique. None of us have the job of writing a decent chunk of the New Testament, or in fact, any of the New Testament. But if we are saints, if we've been reconciled to God through Jesus' suffering on the cross, then we are also servants. And to one degree or another, we will share in Jesus' ongoing suffering for the sake of his body, the church. In many parts of the world, those who belong to Jesus are very well aware of this. This is what they sign up for when they come to Jesus. But here in the UK, it might be harder for us to come to terms with. We might feel it is not what we signed up for. But that's okay. We can adjust our expectations. We can bring our expectations in line with what Scripture tells us. Not just in this place, but in many places. We can recognize that we are both saints and servants. Our wildly glorious identity is also a deadly serious one. And whatever we might have to suffer for the sake of Christ's body, the church, whether it's a tiny bit or a big bit, whatever we personally have to suffer, we have the incredible honor of knowing Jesus, our Lord, suffers along with us. He so identifies with us that he even enters into our affliction. That's how committed he is to us and to the mission he has given us. In verse 25, Paul explains what it means to be a servant of the church. It means presenting the word of God in its fullness. Okay, but what is that? In verse 26, Paul says, It's the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Many spiritual people love mystery. They enjoy God talk that is vague and that's hard to pin down. Mystery. People love that kind of thing because you can feel great about being into it without having to really respond to it or do much about it ever. But when the New Testament uses the word mystery, that is not what it has in mind. In the New Testament, mystery almost always, always refers to something that was unclear in the past, but it has now been made clear. A few times it refers to something that's going to happen in the future, but even in those instances, the mystery is always explained. The most common use of mystery in the New Testament is referring to how God's plan of salvation has unfolded. The Old Testament is full of promises and it's full of hopes of God's salvation. The prophets speak about all nations experiencing God's salvation. 
The promises and the hopes were strong. But there was in the Old Testament a degree of mystery as to how exactly those promises and hopes would be fulfilled. But the New Testament explains the mystery. It tells us the promises and hopes of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is in Christ that all nations will experience God's salvation. Now the evidence suggests that many, if not most, of the Christians here in Colossae came from a Gentile background. They were pagans, they were non-Jews. And they needed to know God's salvation was not just for the nation of Israel. They need to know Jesus is not just a Jewish Messiah. The glorious riches of Christ are available to Gentiles too. Gentiles like you and me. Our hope rests on Jesus Christ who died for us. Jesus Christ who suffers with us as we serve him. And as the end of verse 27 says, he is as close to us as he could possibly be. He is in us. Just as Jesus promised his first disciples, after his resurrection and his return to heaven, he sent his Holy Spirit, his Holy Spirit, to encourage us and comfort us and give us strength to serve our Savior even in the midst of affliction. And this message that strengthens us, this is the message we are to share with others. We don't serve our Savior in this world by spreading uncertainties and passing on vague suggestions. We don't serve our Savior in this world by making our message cloudy and mysterious. We serve our Savior by proclaiming the mystery that has now been made clear. We can be reconciled to God. And there's no mystery about how that happens. It happens through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Through trust in his sacrifice, we become saints. Forever holy in God's sight. Without blemish. And free from accusation. And as you and I serve Jesus, our Savior, we can be sure, even when we suffer for his sake, he is with us. We are not alone. Even in the deepest, darkest affliction, he is with us. That's something to praise him for. We're going to do that as we sing this truth together. We're not alone, for Christ is here.
risen Jesus says to us, I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy to the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.